Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Michael Bender, the author of Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. The author of this New York Times bestseller is also the senior White House correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Bender. Hey, thanks for having me on. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. On the early morning of November 9th, 2016, Donald Trump emerged at Trump Tower to claim victory. The first time politician had beaten someone who had been preparing to be president for two decades. Donald Trump had figured out a winning formula in states the Republicans had not succeeded in in generations. Four years ago, two, I should say four years later, two impeachments, 25,000 tweets. On the early morning of November 4th, 2020, he emerged at the White House to say the same thing, that he'd won, but he hadn't. Michael Bender's book explores how the winning formula broke down in the last year of the Trump presidency. Michael, when you heard, frankly, we did win this election, did you know that would be the title of your book? Uh, I actually thought that it, it, it might be. I thought it would be a good, uh, a good sort of encapsulation of, of everything we saw in 2020, which was sort of uh, a, a president um, desperate to hold on to power, desperate to hold on to office, and his willingness to in, go to uh, extraordinary lengths to impose his own reality uh, on that situation. Um, so I, I thought it, I, I, uh, I, I thought it, it might be. I, I did want the, I wanted the book to be um, uh, an interesting read. I wanted it to be a, you know, we all know the sort of story of the the Trump chaos, and I didn't want this to be another just simply a Trump chaos book. I wanted to give people a, re- a reason to to turn the page, and and um, and and that had that sort of uh, intriguing kind of twist as a as a as a potentially very interesting title, and and it ended up ended up being what, what I used, so, yeah. It's, it's easy to forget that the president was riding high in early 2020. Mm-hmm. With all that 2020 mm-hmm. brought, um, his mm-hmm. approval was as high as it had ever been. I went back and looked, and it was just under mm-hmm. 50%, which was about as high as it had been. Um, mm-hmm. He'd gotten tough with Iran. The economy was pretty okay. His mm-hmm. challengers were all over the map. The Democrats were, the uh, you know, a, a herd of cats. Um mm-hmm. The there was an impeachment that the president's team thought would make him stronger. So set the stage for us. How confident yeah. was the president in January, based on your reporting with the Wall Street Journal? Oh, it, it, it was he was um, you know sky high. I mean, the whole team was um, like you said. The he wanted to run on the economy. It was cooking the impeachment. He'd uh, he he not only he'd been acquitted. He, you know, he not only survived, but he was thriving. And it had supercharged um, his own fundraising with his supporters. It had turned a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of independents and moderates against Democrats. At that point, they were blaming Democrats for kind of wasting their time with all of these Ukrainian names they couldn't really, uh, had never heard of, couldn't pronounce, and, and wasn't quite clear that um, it was cut and dry and uh, impeachable offense. Um, and, and yeah, I have, I have a scene in the book in, 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 um, in February, um, you know, to where, where Trump is, um, 
is speaking to reporters on Air Force One and is in, in the in the president's cabin. And the, the other thing that's happening at the, at the same time is is, is that uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, is melting down in the Democratic primary. He's uh, he's on stage in in, in, um, in a debate with Democrats and gets just eviscerated by Elizabeth Warren. And Trump is now you know just absolutely giddy and calls the press corps into the cabin um, at the front of Air Force One, which is pretty unheard of. Um, before before Trump took office, and you've and flown on Air Force One a number of times, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and uh, and so it's giving reporters a, a kind of play by play, uh, color commentary of the de Democratic primary, and making sure that the uh, the flight attendants are bringing in you know uh, pretzels and chips and and different you know hors d'oeuvres to, to you know so that the so that the press corps you know the so called fake news can settle in and and enjoy the scene with him. So he was. Um, you know, he sends us, he sends reporters off at that point and, and says, you know, I, you know, I, I'm going to win. You're, you're seeing it now. Um, you know, this is, uh, uh, I'm going to be president again. Did he have a certain political touch that you observed that was underestimated? It kind of reminds me of George W. Bush a little bit. Um, you know, don't misunderestimate mm -hmm. me. Is, is that mm -hmm. what you found in your years of covering Donald Trump that he sort of really understood where the political openings were better than his opponents realized he did. Yeah, I mean Trump's um, Trump's abilities certainly match the moment here, right? Uh, looking for I mean, at a time when the American electorate was looking for an outsider, when they uh, patience and trust in institutions was at an all-time low. Uh, here comes someone like Donald Trump, who has been, um, you know, has a has. Certainly, has a I mean, he's a gift for communications. No matter you know what you think about him or, or what you think he's saying or how he uses it, um, that he's sharpened over years and um, uh, you know he's, he's come up it's in the in the New York tabloid culture. Uh, and by the time you know 2016 rolls around and, and certainly displays this through 2020, has a sort of uh, a, a gift for um, communicating and speaking in a kind of uh, imprecise way that. Um, that anyone can kind of hear what they want to hear uh, from him. If you are if you are against Trump, you 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 can hear um, him say, you know, he can utter the sort of same sentence where his opponents will will say, "C C C," you know, this is you know this is why he's unfit for office. But at the same time, his his supporters say, you know, this is why um, this is exactly why we want him in the job. So um, you know, I, I think that was definitely a, a, a gift of his. Yeah, and you can sort you can sort of get the the gist of what he's saying. Um, one of the reasons the president was so confident, and this is something that I observed early on covering his early rallies in Florida. I observed uh, maybe I don't know a half dozen of them even before he was president. Um, it, one of the reasons he was so confident is that is that he was not only surrounded by deferential advisors who gave him flattering information, but the rallies. Um, the rallies featured tens of thousands of people. They clapped at the same speed and at the same mm -hmm. volume, almost no matter what he said. Most presidential mm -hmm. addresses will go up and down, and there's a funny line maybe, and then there's a serious moment. And But the Trump rallies are like the same rhythm, you know, the same level of applause all the way through. Um, cracking down on China, low-flow shower heads, uh, mm -hmm. they all elicited the same response. Um, you profile, and this is one of my favorite parts of your book, one of the sort of motifs of the book is um, the front row Joes. Um, mm -hmm. they wait for days and days to see him. And I've talked to several members of them over the time uh, that mm -hmm. I covered Trump rallies. And um, explain the devotion that his most loyal followers had 
to him and why you felt that this was an important insight into Trump's political sensibilities. Um, in other words, why they represented that the media just couldn't gauge the support that Donald Trump would have in 2016 and then again in 2020. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, I mentioned earlier, is trying to give people something, you know, there's a whole pantheon, uh, you know, libraries full of Trump books written over the decade. Um, uh, and I wanted to give people a reason to, to, to read this one, to buy this one, to read this one. And I think that, um, uh, you know, we have a lot of new reporting in here from uh, what was happening behind the scenes on, uh, on, on in, when it came to COVID and George, George Floyd um, and a lot of uh, unreported scenes inside the campaign under the hood of that $2 billion operation uh, with exclusive memos and text messages that, that start to explain some of the decisions that were being made over there. But the third piece is, is the front row Joe's here. I, I, and I don't think that anyone has spent the kind of time with Trump supporters that I have. I effectively had embedded for two years with the folks who go to, you know, rally after rally after rally. And these are people who have been to 30, 40, 50 in some cases, 60 Trump rallies over the, you know, over, over the past five years. And, and, and kind of what I found here was that, um, you know, that, that, that they had found a sort of sense of community. I mean, these were in, uh, people who are, um, you know, recently retired or on the verge of retirement, uh, maybe didn't have kids or estranged from their kids, um, time on their hands, right? And they were going to these rallies that they, uh, were were um, drawn by Trump's uh, uh, status as an outsider candidate. They liked what they had seen either on The Apprentice or a, you know um, uh, him in, in the New York tabloids, him as a New York you know builder, businessman, or the you know or, or um, uh, the Trump brand itself. Um, and they started finding each other, started seeing the same people at these rallies, and 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 formed this kind of community where. They would stay at each other's houses when they were traveling uh, on the road or maybe split a hotel room or carpool. Um, you know, a couple of people met and divorced um, uh, because of Trump rallies. And, um, you know, in, in, in a way, Trump had, had made their lives richer, bigger, you know, fuller. Uh, one, of the, one of the rally goers, goers who I spent a lot of time with in the book is a woman by the name of Sandra Kaczynski. She, by the end of 2020, She's a um, she's frequent flyer status uh, on uh, on Delta. I think it is one of the airlines where she's standing in. You know, most of us. I was spent most of 2020 in 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 my house, let alone um, traveling on airplanes. And um, she earns enough miles to, to earn earn um, uh, first class status, and uh, has to ask the flight attendant what what it means when they tell her she's you know become you know uh, silver preferred platinum or whatever whatever it was. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think what I, what I, and what, one thing I do try to do is through, through the book is kind of show how these folks are, are ultimately misled that whether it's COVID or the election results of 2020, that the, that the person that they put their trust in here, um, it, you know, doesn't level with them when it comes to the severity of COVID early on and certainly doesn't level with them on the, at the end about what the actual election results are. Uh, in 2020, and and it has some some real consequences, not for the just the country, but for them personally. Yeah, I remember uh, talking to people who were waiting. I guess probably about a day and a half before a rally uh, here in Tampa, where I live and work. And I spoke to um, a couple people who may qualify as front row Joes. They were there a day and a half early, mm-hmm. and um, they were. Con- this was just before the election, and they were confident that it had already been stolen. That there was nothing. 
that anyone could do. This is apparently the last few days I'm going to get to see him as my president, and that's why I'm here. Um, yeah, Trump had been promising just that to us for years, right? I mean, um, in, in, in a way, like I, I spend the, some of the end of the book here talking about how the people around Trump is a real failure of imagination um, and, and from the people closest to Trump and his advisors in those last, those last couple of months to not realize that exactly where this was going. I mean, there was, uh, you know, almost to a person thought, everyone thought that, you know, Trump was going to kind of find his own way to a concession, maybe not a, not a traditional concession, but to find some way to, to, uh, to, to give a, a wink and a nod to everybody that, 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 that he'd lost. Um, but the reality is he had just spent the, he spent five, four years as president telling us, you know, no other politicians were to be trusted. Uh, the courts were wrong. Um, and, you know, and, and that the media was always lying. Um, and, and, you know, and it's true. It, it goes back even further, further than that. It's a, you know, that an Emmy that the apprentice didn't get, I, I think an Academy award or, you know, one of these TV awards that, that he, that he did not win and, you know, accused, um, the Academy of, of election fraud, uh, you know, because of the other show that got it. I mean, so this is a, you know, tried and true pattern from, from, from Trump for not just years, but decades. Let's talk about how things start to come crashing down. Uh, He, as you mentioned, was doing, was riding high. The polls look good for him. The Democrats were in disarray. Um, February 25th, there's a press conference. Health officials say it's not a matter of if this pandemic is going to be the real deal, but when. Mm -hmm. The stock market falls. And I have this vivid imagery in my head that you described of of the president being on Air Force One and not being able to sleep all the way back. Um, yeah. Describe that scene, but also sure. what early decisions were made in the political response that would foreshadow the way the virus would be handled over the next year. Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is kind of the the where where his world sort of where the you know where the carpet starts getting pulled out from under his feet it, 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 with regards to the, not just twenty twenty the year it was, but also his reelection. Um, he'd been essentially feted for two days in India. Uh, I, I, I was on this trip and it was an incredible display of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, you know, what he would describe as love. I mean, it was the, you know, the largest political rally ever held in, a, in an outdoor uh, cricket stadium in India that they had rushed to finish building. And in some cases still building when, when, while he was still there. Um, you know, uh, people lined streets, miles and miles, thousands of people waving signs and dancing and all this on all this, a, a, a big dinner. And um, again, coming at the, you know, the, coming at the tail end of, um, you know, the, the sort of Democratic, Democratic disarray in, in that, in that race. And what, um, just briefly, was it true adoration yeah. or was it show? What, what was it done to flatter? You know, it was probably, it, it was probably a little of both. I mean, it certainly was some show. I mean, uh, Modi wanted, um, a big show uh, of, of adoration, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, and there were and he had made sure that people were. Um, there were some stories in the press at the time about how the things that were going on behind the scenes that he was doing to make sure that stadium was full, to make sure that there was people two, three, four deep uh, along the sides of the street when the motorcade was driving by. Uh, they had built a wall to hide some of the slums uh, that the motorcade was going to going to you know going to be driving by. Um, so yeah, that, that was definitely. A big part of it, um, and then as but you so say, the early decisions, yeah, 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 and 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 there are signs of of, of COVID's, um, you know, menace uh, 
certainly in China at that point, it had been a couple of months. And Trump had been sort of dismissive of it so far. The flight back from India, um, where there, the, the, the CDC has a press conference, as you said, um, and stock market um, tanks on that news. And, and basically everyone around Trump has, uh, you know, exhausted from the trip, um, falls asleep on, on, on the flight, except for, except for him and a couple of other people. Um, and he, he doesn't even sleep when he gets home, gets home back, comes back to Washington, goes to the White House, has a news conference that day to, to start, the, you know, downplaying um, the severity of, of, the, um, of, of the virus. And, you know, this is where we see, the, you know, the beginnings of, of Trump's political uh, approach to this, which is, um, you know, he, he will say, he says later in the year, uh, and if you ask him now that he was concerned about a panic, that he didn't want to panic people. And I think there's some, there's a, certainly a certain amount of truth to that, that, that um, had he come out or anyone come out and said, this is a pandemic right, right away, or that this is, you know, um, uh, going to be devastating. Like people would have lost their minds, but instead of educating people about what this might look like or what doctors did know about it or what, you know, the top health, public health officials in the administration were thinking about it, um, you know, to start to bring the public along, um, he, he, he effectively denies it and says it's going away. There's only a couple like of a people. Yeah. I mean, this is where that where, where some of those lines, um, you know, start to, you know, to, to pick up and it's, you know, it's going to go away that there's going to, you know, that, you know, he starts talking about, you know, not wanting, um, you know, cruise ships to dock in the country because he's worried about, you know, the, the COVID numbers increasing, um, and where it just starts to uh, become very, very clear that 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 he's going to it, it's going to be a purely political response from him, and 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 there is, um, and that's sort sort of the part part of the tragedy of Trump in 2020 is is no one initially here blames Trump for for COVID, right? I mean, it's not his fault that that there's a pandemic, but like any you know, just in the same way that no one's going to blame. Um, you know, the governor of Florida or the governor of Louisiana for a hurricane hitting the state, right? But the, 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 the rub comes in the response and how you respond to it and, and, and the lack of empathy from Trump and the lack of, um, you know, uh, uh, of honesty and just seeming purely political, you know, starts to do him in um, as time goes on. What did he say? I'm wondering if he ever said any of this to you or to other mm -hmm. reporters. Um, what did he say privately about the deaths that were happening? Did he ever indicate to you or to other people around him his innermost feelings on the misery going on out there? Well, I mean, I, I think he, he, you know, he he does say a little bit of this publicly, right? Like even one death is too many, and I don't have any reason to believe any reason to not believe him on uh, when it comes to that. But the, but, but the issue kind of comes in and when um, he, I mean, he just turns everything. So makes everything so personal. Right. And, um, and, and it's like the act of acknowledging these depths and the severity of it is somehow a reflection on, on him as president or his abilities as a leader or as a politician. Um, and, and, you know, that's where he starts to, um, you know, uh, distance himself from that instead of trying to embrace some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy of it and, and the, uh, the difficulty that Americans at every, in every walk of life and every kind of economic station where, where, 
we're, we're dealing with it within in one way or another, right? I mean, it changed our routines for uh, from coast to coast and, um, you know, increased everybody's stress. Um, you know, we're talking about a period in time that is not that long ago, but it's useful to mm-hmm. go back and remember the way things were in that moment mm-hmm. and what we were thinking going forward without the benefit of having 15 or 16 months of hindsight uh, mm-hmm. now. So explain um, how much the pandemic changed the president's campaign. The mm-hmm. rallies were going to be a big part of it, and they always were, and he loves those mm-hmm. rallies. Um, how did the, the, the pandemic start to shape the way the political calculations were made and ultimately help lead to you know, his political demise? Yeah, I think what it showed was that there was just never, um, I mean, for someone known as a counterpuncher, right? It, there was never sort of a, uh, there was never really a counterpunch from the campaign. There was never, there was never a readjustment. You, you know, I would say even the important thing is to take a step even further back. Uh, I mean, Trump hired a campaign manager in February of 2018. He'd barely been president for a year. Um, and the re-election campaign is underway. So then by the time February 2020 comes, right, this thing is, is, is two years in the, pro- in, in the, in the making. And um, I mean, you can argue that there is, there's certain things that, that the campaign should have done by then that they didn't. But um, I think when it, it's, it's inarguable is that, it, 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 that they really struggled, the president and the, and the senior team struggled to readjust. Um, and they know, had to cancel not, the rallies and, you know, they start I mean, to they make fun right. of the, yeah. Yeah. They, they have to cancel rallies. They have to, um, you know, find some way, some different way to talk about the economy that was going to be, you know, the, 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 the golden key to the election. And now, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the great depression all over again. Right. I mean, it, it those are the kind of, that's the kind of cliff we saw in the economy. Um, and it wasn't impossible to overcome. In fact, you know, Trump got pretty close to winning a second term, but um, but it 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 took him um, months and months to find. Like I mean, and and I kind of argue in the book here that they never that he never really settled on a on a single message um, to sell the voters um, about why he deserved a second term, um, whether it was the economy or COVID or or, or anything else. And when Biden starts to emerge as the Democratic mm-hmm. nominee, you know, Trump had identified years before this that Biden mm-hmm. would be his biggest threat and mm-hmm. maybe his only threat. Um, how did they start to focus on Biden? You write a lot in the book about this, like this, um, well, maybe we could try this. Maybe we could try that. This mm-hmm. isn't quite working. Maybe we should change the types of pictures that we're using of him to make him appear older. Trump was angry, who's, of course, always so concerned about the visual element um, and yeah. to, to some success. Trump wants them to use pictures to make him seem old. And um, then there was this quote, I think it was, I, um, I forget who said it, so I'll let you say who said it. But there was this quote that said, should they hit the mick? Kind of mm-hmm. a vulgar way of saying, you know, and I'm, I, excuse me for using that word, but it, it's in the book. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. so explain the calculations they're making on Biden as he's emerging as the nominee. Yeah, I think this is um this is a good way to sort of illustrate the point I was just trying to make is that is that he just can't get his mind around what the messaging should be when it comes to any of the issues and Biden in particular. You're right. I mean, polling it showed for for years and and then months in 2022 before Biden was the nominee that that he would be the toughest to beat. But um, Trump has just sort of decided that uh, somewhere along the line that 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 Biden 
isn't isn't that tough, and that is in fact is a, is a weak candidate. And, and you know, I mean, he's, he said it publicly all the stuff about you know questioning his mental faculties, whether he's not all there, right? I mean, I have in the book that privately in the Oval Office during you know an unrelated policy meeting, he just sort of wonders out loud how he can be losing in the polls to a quote unquote mental retard, right? I mean, which I which I repeat here because again to show just how. Uh, the, the difficulty Trump has in, in settling on, on the idea that this is going to be his opponent, that he needs to to take him on. I mean, the the the, um, the kind of calling card of Trump politically is the you know his his ability to to, to kind of devastate an opponent with a nickname, uh, sleepy you know. I mean, excuse me, uh, you know, um, crooked Hillary. Yeah, crooked Hillary, energy. little Marco, lion Ted. Right, Jeb's low energy, and <laughs> when it comes to Biden. Um, so a couple of things I'm finding. One is that he ends up using uh, a couple dozen different nicknames for Biden. Uh, and the first and one that probably most people know is Sleepy Joe, um, which, you know, even early on, people around him, some of his advisors wondered about the wisdom of that, that it was um, sort of sounded like your, uh, you know, sort of, sort of sleepy old uncle. You would fall asleep at the kitchen table during Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, in a year like 2020 and a, and a, and a presidency like Trump's like, there was sort of an appeal to that, you know, it wasn't devastating. It was, it was sort of appealing the idea of that. Um, you weren't going to hear from the president every, you could hear from the president every hour of the day. So he goes back and forth on some of this stuff and, um, you know, uh, his, his campaign meanwhile is split. Um, uh, uh, Brad Parscale was still the campaign manager. Um, even during, and, and it was early months of COVID, uh, Parscale wants to, uh, you know, kind of, open up the floodgates and, and turn all the weapons of, of the campaign uh, and the resources of the campaign and just to, to devastate Biden and, and try to drive his approval ratings uh, just through the floor under the theory that he didn't have, initially Biden didn't really have any money. He had to sort of make all that up and uh, that he wouldn't be able to counter, that he wouldn't be, and that he wouldn't be able to recover. Uh, maybe that doesn't happen because as, for one reason, as you say, like Trump can't really pull a trigger on, on any of the ads because he he doesn't he, he disappears in the details when he's when, when Trump isn't uh, he, he has a tendency to, to, to kind of um, uh, micromanage to the point of um, uh, of kind of missing the trees here I've seen where he COVID's happening you know uh, and he's showing people at Mar-a-Lago the uh, edits he has on the Republican National Convention logo that it should be uh, five stars around the elephant instead of four because you know if you're because of a five star hotel and that that, that sort of thing, um, and yeah, and Brad comes and tells uh, Trump like we need to hit the mick, meaning we need to go after Biden. But there was another camp, uh, this one led by Kellyanne Conway, that said no, this is this is a pandemic, it's COVID. You know, we need to uh, politic by showing you know uh, our advantage, which is the the, the podium that Trump needs to go out be a leader on COVID and um, you know, uh, uh, people aren't going to have an appetite for negative campaign ads, but they are going to have an appetite for um, hearing hearing something direct and um, you know reassuring about about uh, you know about an unknown virus. And um, you know, there's there's merits to both the um, uh, and, and Trump kind of pick, goes picks the middle. He initially holds off on on an attack and then kind of approves it just like you know a, a, a month or so later um, when it becomes clear that his you know um, COVID news conferences aren't having quite the effect that he wanted. 
and he bragged about the ratings, best ratings in the world. Um, yeah. Th- there's tremendous, there was tremendous energy in the country in 2020, particularly in late May and early June. Um, the George Floyd video gets out. Um, mm-hmm. How did the president react when he saw the video? And how did the campaign react to this new energy that was sweeping the nation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was another sort of inflection, big inflection point for not just the country, but but Trump and his re-election chances too. I mean, initially, I report for the first time in the book and and have some uh, uh, you know pretty detailed scenes about this. Is that is that Trump is um, distraught about what he sees in the George Floyd video. Um, he's uh, he's taken aback. He's 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 you know disturbed like so many Americans were um, after watching that. I mean, I should sort of caveat that by saying that it did take Trump a couple of days before um, before he watched the video and he never actually watches the full thing. He, he turns it off halfway. I mean, he knows how it ends and it, and it, and it becomes too much for him. And, um, and he starts telling people that how awful it was and that, and that, that family, and that his family needs justice. And, you know, uh, and he's seen cops like that, right. That he's, you know, he's from Queens and he, he he's heard about these kinds of things before, um, and there's a moment early on where um, uh, some of the White House, you know, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump are pushing for a more, a, a softer response from Trump, this sort of, you know, justice for the family, reach out to the family. Um, but it doesn't take long um, that, again, to get back to an earlier point, I mean, Trump personalizes these protests. He sees these protests, protests erupting around the country and his, and, and, um, his attention goes to why, you know, why they're embarrassing him like this, right? I mean, in his mind, he'd been, he'd been talked into to criminal justice reform, supporting criminal justice reforms. After a very, you know, George Wallace-esque law and order campaign in 2016, Jared Kushner gets him to um, endorse and, 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 and support criminal justice reform laws, um, which he does, Trump does. Uh, he, you know, there's other things for, you know, that would up you know, appeal to um, uh, Black Americans. Uh, Trump codifies uh, uh, millions of dollars for historically Black colleges and universities, money that these schools had to fight for for years, um, which is great, you know, all, all fine and good, but um, Trump used that as, okay, I did these things, therefore, um, you know, Black voters should, should like me and not criticize me. And, uh, you know, as these protests are going on, I detail in the book here, he says, you know, to some people like, you know, that, you know, uh, uh, they're never going to vote for me. They all hate me. You know, I did all these things for the blacks. Um, and this is what I get. Right. I mean, and, it, and, you know, once you understand that, you can start to understand his response and it be, how, why, why it becomes so, um, so violent, really, um, is that he views this as, a, as, as an affront to him instead of a instead of a reaction to, you know, decades uh, of, of racial injustice in the country. How did the march across Lafayette Square to the church happen? And I have to say, this is probably my favorite scene in the book. Is is mm-hmm. the, what happened after it, and and you know how the president tried to kind of dispatch his aides to calm this whole thing down. But just explain um, the moment where you know the, the the this is when, of course, the president walks across and holds up the Bible. Um, and mm-hmm. then clear the square. So anyway, explain what was going on in the White House, the deliberations that were happening, and then the reaction to the reaction afterwards. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really with the, the point where the Trump White House becomes 
completely insular for the rest of the rest of the year. It's June one. Um, the uh, uh, Floyd had, had been killed a, a few days earlier. Um, the uh, protests had had enveloped Washington as well as other cities. Had gotten um, close to the White House. We'd find out a few days later that um, Trump had gone down to the bunker, a, a, you know, a secure bunker below the White House because uh, Secret Service had deemed the, the, the protest uh, uh, enough of a threat that um, that Trump needed to go to the place where you know um, where where, where presence had 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 gone before and in, in, in real moments of of, of uh, uh, you know, national security uh, emergencies. And um, and that morning, um, Trump summons his, his military team, his, his national security team, and tells them, and it, well, uh, and then they, the, the discussion quickly turns to the Insurrection Act. And Trump gets behind this idea of, of uh, deploying active duty troops uh, in major American cities. And it's a very, very heated um, meeting uh, with Trump and Stephen Miller and on one side, and and General Mark Milley, uh, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense at the time, um, and Attorney General Bill Barr on the other side, um, and it uh, you know kind of fast forward a little bit, everyone kind of goes to their corners. Uh, Milley and Barr are back at the FBI headquarters in Washington, not headquarters, excuse me, one of the outpo FBI outposts in Washington, where it's sort of a command post for the uh, protests and. Um, and I detail in the book for the first time how it was kind of a, on a whim, on a lark, that they end up back at the White House. Uh, their communication system goes down for a minute at, at the FBI that they're monitoring the protest. Uh, Barr had wanted to go back and um, uh, and 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 see how the perimeter was being pushed back. It was supposed to be pushed back away from the White House, past the square, past St. John's Church. Earlier in the day, he thought it was happening earlier in the day. Uh, Mark Milley, who's now in, he's wearing fatigues. Um, had planned to go and visit some of the National Guardsmen who were in the area um, on duty to, to, to tell them what their, you know, their responsibilities were, were to protect the First Amendment, you know, um, and to remind them of that, and, um, you know, their kind of quasi-law enforcement duties. So he decides to go with, with, with Bart too, and, and they get swept up kind of into this um, last-minute decision between Trump and a, and a few close aides to... Uh, have this display of strength in their mind. They want they, they want some image that 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 Trump is not hiding in the bunker. That he's um, um, you know you know in charge. And they decide to to walk across uh, Lafayette Square to to St. John's Church. Um, and all these sort of things come together in um, in a way that you, I mean you really can't make up. Um, and and you have one of the really what's going to go down is. It, is one of the most, you know, sort of devastating um, political scenarios in, in in modern American political history um, of, you know, I mean, being, you know, TV news cameras uh, above in helicopters watching as as Mark Milley is on the phone um, uh, in the middle of Lafayette Square and 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 peaceful protests are being pushed back in what appears to be nothing more than uh, an a so that the president of the United States can have a photo op and raise the Bible above his head um, in, in, in front of a church. I want to get to what you call hell week, but mm -hmm. June 17th, you get a call. The president's mm -hmm. waiting. He did say he loved your hair. 
um, and, and just being able to see it right now. And I'm not one to talk, but it's fabulous. Um, what is it like to get summoned to the White House and to the Oval Office and just take us through for mo- most yeah. people have not experienced that. So tell us, what's it like? Yeah, definitely. I, um, um, it's, it's nerve wracking, right? I mean, I had, um, it's the president of the United States and, and knowing that you're going to have the opportunity to sit across from him one-on-one um, and, uh, and, and ask any questions is, is, is stressful enough and, and, but to have to do it on a moment's notice, um, you know, I am lucky enough to be surrounded by a very, uh, strong collegial professional team at the wall street journal. And as soon as I got the call, I, you know, emailed and called all of them and told them what was going on. So they were uh, sending suggested uh, questions and topics as I was sort of racing to get, again, this is the middle of a pandemic of lockdowns. I would, you know, who knows, I, I, it had been a couple of days since I showered or put on clean clothes, right? Like or shaved and like I had to go and do uh, all that very quickly. Um, and to boot, I have, um, uh, uh, I'm very lucky to be married to the um, Washington Post Bureau Chief, Ashley Parker, um, who's working in the same space. And, you know, she drives me to the White House and is also, you know, a firing you know, potential questions and topics at me in, in the, in the, in the car. Um, My wife is a reporter point, too. So we've had rides like that also. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Ahead, Technically yeah. a, you know, a, a competitor at that point, but, um, right, right. um and then, uh, I, I'm still kind of unsure why I've been, you know, called to the White House or, or, or what the agenda is. I mean, he does have the Juneteenth rally in a couple of days. Um, sometimes he likes to do interviews ahead of, big rallies to get kind of, you know, uh, um, polished up and, and that sort of thing. But I, I come to find out that it, there really is no agenda other than he hadn't had a media interview in a while. He, he did decided he wanted to start doing another round of interviews with reporters. And uh, for whatever reason, I was on kind of the tip of his tongue. I mean, I um, uh, end up getting left and I get brought to the, and I have to take my COVID test and, and wait for that to pass. And um uh, and I and I and I detail this pretty in, 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 to to uh, uh, maybe an exhausting degree in the book, but and then I get 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 escorted to the Oval Office and effectively left there alone inside. for thirty minutes. Correct inside, in, yeah. In, and and explain. I mean, what is going through one's mind when you're sitting there in the same room that FDR and JFK and Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan and all these people, Harry Truman, have sat in? What what goes through someone's yeah. mind sitting there? No, it's an amazing, it's really is an amazing moment. I, I've been lucky enough to, again, to have this job and, and to have this kind of, um, uh, you know, ability to, to, to be in, in the Oval Office. And so I had been there a few times before then, um, but I had never been, you know, effectively left alone. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a White House photographer that was kind of coming in and out who I'd known from a previous life. And, um, you know, she snapped a couple pictures and said hi. And then, then it was awesome. I mean, it was effectively like a, the, the Trump world coming in and out. I mean, Dan Scavino kind of glides through, says hello. Uh, Mike Pence comes in and says, oh, I heard you were here. I wanted to say hi and ask you how Ashley's doing. How's your baby doing? You know, how's the family? Um, and then, uh, you know, fi- and, uh, you know, so, um, you know, kind of wondering, you know, do I, do I sit behind the desk and, uh, you know, make Selfie. myself at home? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd recommend uh, against that, but. Yeah, I, I did not do that. I, you know, did, a, I did think of for a second I, to uh, when Pence left, you know, I said, all right, I just want to say hi. And I did think about it for a second saying, you know, uh, thanks for stopping by. Can, can you shut the door on your way out? Um, but, I, but I also did not do that either. Um, and, uh, you know, 
So that'll be all, sir. Um, yeah. Uh, so then, uh, so then we go through the uh, the. There's a Tulsa rally, which you call the mm-hmm. last MAGA rally. I'm going to skip ahead mm-hmm. a little bit here, but um, mm-hmm. this is capped off by the image of the president leaving the helicopter disheveled. We see him walking with mm-hmm. the MAGA hat, and he's all sort of half on. He's sort of half dressed. Um, mm-hmm. The crowd size was bad. It disappointed the president. People got sick. Someone died. Herman Cain, uh, former Republican mm-hmm. candidate for president, dies because of this rally. Um, the president's digital mastery kind of wears off. They got kind of uh, spoofed by a bunch of kids on TikTok, um, mm-hmm. which made the attendance figures seem like they were going to be bigger than they were. But then Hell Week comes, uh, which you right. call it that uh, October mm-hmm. 7th. Um, the president gets COVID. Then there are these debates that are looming. Um, how did Hell Week go down? And they really just were not able to adjust their strategy as this Hell Week moves on towards Election Day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the, I, I, just, I would start by saying, like, I, I, one of the um, uh, sort of uh, advantages of Trump is, and, and, and also what turns out in this case to be a, a, a real disadvantages his unpredictability and his willingness to um you know kind of keep a very flat circle around him and um be involved in all the decisions on one hand that you know things do move can move very fast around trump and in a way that they you know normally do not in a government bureaucracy but on the other hand things can kind of move fast around trump and what happens is you know there's a there's a rose garden Ceremony to announce Amy Coney Barrett as the um, as his as his third um, incredibly third nominee to the S- Supreme Court in four years. Um, it's out in the Rose Garden. It's it, it's an outdoor event. He does have some pictures inside with uh, Barrett and her family. Um, but what happens is the event ends. They go into uh, in, in inside the White House, and Trump turns to people and says, "Well, invite everybody in, and we're just going to have some pictures." I, I, you know. Bring everybody back in, and 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 that's what happens. Um, you know, uh, Meadows brings some people in, Barr comes in. You know, they, and suddenly there's a there's a reception inside um, for Barrett, and 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 you know this is where um, people in the administration, you know, um, tell me that 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 they're sure that um, the COVID spread started, um, that 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 ended up taking out a good chunk of the White House and infecting ultimately the president. Um, now in between here, in between the Supreme Court nomination and the positive test is a is the first debate with Biden. And if you pressed me for like one single moment of that did in Trump and as for his reelection, uh, I would I would say it was this debate and where he comes out and and uh, unlike 2016, he has something to lose. Uh, unlike 2016, he comes out in full aggressiveness, but without any of the charm, right? I mean, say what you will about Trump, and I know this isn't really for everybody, um, certainly, but 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 there was something. I mean, there was something funny. I mean, Trump was funny, right? I mean, he, he even he he even Hillary. If I may jump yeah, in, but Hillary Clinton even said when I watched when I meeting her when I rewatched mm-hmm. the debates, the tapes of the debates with me and him, I found myself watching him more than myself. And that's yeah, Hillary Clinton exactly. saying that. Right. And like his, it wasn't just all pure tech. There was always something that would sort of take a little bit of the edge off. Some like joke. I mean, it was, it was mocking um, that, that gave people a little bit of, um, but, but what we saw in Cleveland was, was the attacks without the mocking. He wasn't funny. He wasn't trying to be funny. Um, he was, um, you know, uh, 
he was, you know, and I quote him in the book from from his own age saying, he was just an asshole, right? And that's what uh, 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 people um, really um, were turned off by. And, uh, you know, and it was a couple of days later, he, 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 he tests positive um, for COVID, which just has this effect of um, just encapsulating everything that every, all the things that people were, were, were unsure or disliked about Trump. And these sort of few days, uh, it just ties it all together. But we were lucky enough to have a poll with the Wall Street Journal in between these two days, after the debate, but before the positive test. And it's the only time in four years uh, that he's president and, and, we're, and the Wall Street Journal is taking the poll that we see like a, a, a very clear dive. And, um, and, and he just doesn't recover from that. Uh, and, and certainly the COVID test doesn't help. And how close did he get to dying from COVID based on what we know? I mean, I think there is still more that we do not. I, I think there's plenty more to that story that we don't know. I, I, I do. Uh, I, I also think we, I, I give as, as full of an accounting as we know so far. Um, and, and he was extremely sick. I mean, he was, you know, um, uh, he was taking medicine to be put on a vent that, that you would take to be put on a ventilator. Um, there were I mean, they were praying for him in the White House. Mark Meadows tells staff to start praying for the, the, the president's survival. Uh, you know, that's how, that, that's how severe that they thought it was, uh, you know, inside, inside the administration. A few more minutes here. I, I, mm-hmm. I um, let's get to election night, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I, I reflect on 2016 versus 2020. It's almost like everything went right for Trump in 2016, the mm-hmm. Russian interference, the Comey letter, Hillary's emails. And in 2020, everything sort of goes wrong for him. Mm-hmm. If I were at the White House on election night, paint the scene for us. Mm-hmm. Did he really, was he really unable to understand that he had lost? Is he capable of understanding that mentally? And, and yeah. take us through what we would have seen if we had been there when he says uh, the cover of a book that we're discussing right now. <laughs> Frankly, we did win this election. Yeah, I think it was, um, listen, the, even the people around Trump can't, answer the question for sure about whether or not he really believes he won or whether this is all a bit in order to protect the brand. Uh, they go back, people who deal with him on a you know, day-to-day basis, back and forth on that very question. So I do think, though, that um, that night, in the run-up to that night, he was convinced he was going to win. I mean, his own team, their own numbers. I mean, no, everybody, to be fair, everybody's numbers were off in one way or another in, in, in 2020. You know, the predictive modeling and polling and, and that sort of thing. And, and Trump's, um, you know, the you know, uh, $2 billion operation was, was no different. I mean, he was told he was going to win uh, Georgia, you know, by, you know, the same margin he did in 20, um, in 2016. He won it by four, five points in 2016. He, they, they told me he was going to win it by four, I believe, um, in, um, in 2020. And uh, they were confident in Arizona and all these. Correct. That's right. So, I mean, these are Trump's own, his own, his own numbers. Right. Um, And, um, uh, and, and the way it starts unfolding in in the white house on election night in 2020 is similar to what happened in 2016. He was down. um, And then he won Florida. uh, And that seemed to shift the momentum and, you know, the path started to diverge a little bit from there. In 2016, he started picking up more states, and in, in, in 2020, it wasn't. Um, it was in doubt. I mean, that's it was in doubt, and and slipping away, starting to slip away from him. 
and it's 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 pandemonium what happens um, in the White House. I mean, a, publicly at the party, where all of Trump's um, uh, you know administration and friends and 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 campaign staff, lower level staffers were in in you know uh, eating hors d'oeuvres and watching television. Everything seemed fine, but in the residence upstairs in the residence, uh, it's just a it, it's it's a scene out of a movie here where where everyone is just shouting different things at Trump from his kids to his advisors to you know to Rudy Giuliani, and at one point Giuliani tells him to just say you won, just go out there and and, and tell him and and say you won and. Even in Trump world, this kind of is has the effect of a you know a, a, like a record scratching moment where everyone stops and looks at, at Rudy and you know he said well what, what what do you mean what how can he possibly say that like what are you seeing that you know we're not and and the answer was he, he wasn't seeing anything that they weren't that um, that Rudy was telling Trump as he has for you know the, the last couple of years uh, what he wanted to hear and. Um, and and to go and act like he won to, to say that he did, and <clears throat> there's a rush down to the the uh, the East Room where where Trump eventually gives his speech. And I uh, one of the uh, more one of the more poignant moments for me is is Trump's own kind of path from uh, the residence where he's getting all of his different information and different directions and different advice in, until he's behind the microphone in the East Room and he he takes the elevator down with. Uh, with, with Melania and, and, and some of his family, and walks across the White House and uh, in, into these rooms where televisions have been set up for the crowd, where, where people have been, you know, um, and had, had now been moved out of these rooms into the East Room. There's the televisions are still on. There's there's sort of plates on the table, um, and Trump kind of stops at each one of these TVs, um, watching to see if maybe you know something has changed in the last few minutes since you know he'd taken a few steps from the last TV. Looking at the uh, at the numbers and and trying to process what is happening here and, and how it can possibly be that um, there's any doubt about a second term, um, you know, walks through the kind of like a green room, the backstage room where uh, you know some of his old advisors are are, are telling him he won and that this is wrong and um, and then ends up on the catwalk to walk out to the stage in the microphone and and, and blurts out that. Um, how well he's done, that, that, that they're having a great night, that they're winning the election. And frankly, we did win this election. He says, Lay starts to lay the groundwork for January 6th when he says something beautiful is, was stolen from, from us by very bad people. Um, all right, let's wrap it up here. Would COVID, mm-hmm. would COVID have sunk any president? I mean, let's be honest. The, the, mm-hmm. the misery that it created, the economic difficulties it led to, this would not have been easy for any president to deal with. Oh, absolutely not. And and I think you, it's it's not necessarily a hypothetical. Just look around the the rest of the world and other, uh, you know, other world leaders who are dealing with it at the same time. I mean, no one handled this particularly well. I mean, it was unknown. I mean, we were learning new crazy things. I mean, I remember you know, learning new crazy things about this virus on a daily basis. Like every few days, the world changed again. I mean, I remember exactly where I was when. Um, someone when, when when I read that um, that that one of the side effects from COVID was that you know affected your sense of taste and smell. Man, what? Like how? You know, that's like out of science fiction here, right? Um, 
so so yeah i mean it was inherently a, a, a difficult thing it was it was it was the worst pandemic in 100 years the worst economy in 100 years and 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 a, a, a civil rights uprising you know like we hadn't seen in in generations all wrapped up in one so yeah it would have been difficult to, for anyone to handle um but i also think like there was the american public is has a is a, a, a high capacity for forgiveness um and if there was any um attempt at, to um uh, to you know, at earnestness and, and and you know and 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 seeking their their forgiveness and 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 expressing some empathy, I think that would have gone a long way for any president. Is life at Mar-a-Lago good enough for him, with the adoring people who show up frequently, hoping for his endorsement? Is life at Mar-a-Lago good enough for him to preclude him from running again? Uh, and you visited with him there. You 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 spoke right, to him yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of how I, I end the book here in a, in a, in a pretty big scene and uh, with him in Mar-a-Lago and around this adoring crowd and what he's kind of built for himself. Um, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think the this sort of adulation that he gets from his from his clubs and his club members is an it is um, has pulled him out of the doldrums that he felt after the after the after the November 2020. And um, put him in the position where that we see now, which is someone who is very active. I mean, really, in an unprecedented way, in the past hundred years of White House history, have we ever seen? um, We've never seen a a White House president, former president, behave like this after two terms or one. Be the only one, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. You know, so that so now we're talking nineteen, you know, early nineteen oh eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, a hundred years we haven't seen anything like this. Um, where he's, you know, he's he's endorsed a few dozen um, uh, candidates. He's 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 already campaigning for them, and um, you know, putting his imprint not just on the part party and um, but but uh, in, in a way where 2022 is going to be very instructive. And I think it's going to be a very big data point for him when he decides what to do in 2024. Did he learn enough from his final year, the year you describe in your book, to be a better president? I think it's a really good question, um, and uh, you know, will be something would be something that would have to be, uh, you know, he 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 would undoubtedly be asked, and um, if he were run, to run for president again, um, you know, we were you, know, you if you recall in 2020, he it was, it was very difficult for him to talk about a second term. He wanted to talk about what happened in the first term and all the success he had had, and. Um, he, he struggled to pivot to uh, some vision of what the next term would look like. Um, but, but yes, now, I mean, now he's, he will, he will face a very pressing question of what, what a second term would look like, given what we know about 2020. If you could write a book on someone else's and other president's definitive year, mm. any president, uh, a definitive year, win or, win or lose, how, how someone won an election or how someone lost an election, who would you pick? Uh, I don't know. It's a really good question. I'm, I, uh, uh, why, why don't I answer that by, by dodging it? I will say that <laughs> I, by, by saying that what I'm reading right now is a uh, Nixon land. Um, yeah. uh, and that is a, you Great know, book. It's not a yeah. And, yeah, it's not a single year, but, um, you know, I mean, I am, uh, it, it's explaining a, a particular moment in, in political history that, that I'm, I'm really quite enjoying, um, reading right now. So Michael Bender, uh, 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 consistently make sure politicians can't dodge, and we're going to let him dodge uh, on this show. Uh, Michael Bender, the author of 
frankly, we did win this election. The inside story of how Trump lost. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Check out that book, his articles on the Wall Street Journal, and his Twitter feed, which is at Michael C. Bender. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.